In Job 22, we finally have the final words of these three friends. As you read the book of Job, you, you become exhausted by them in some senses as they continue to uh, make Job's life more and more miserable as they continue to charge him, continue to accuse him, and the things like this. And so we finally enter into the final cycle. And one of the things that we're going to see in this, this final cycle as we look at these friends is we get to the point now where they really don't have anything new to offer, which uh, puts us in an interesting position of hearing what they have to say and the emptiness of their words. Uh, as well as then the uh, unique response that Job offers in, in, in the face of that. Uh, Eliphaz in Job 22 with his uh, final attack, it really uh, increases to its, its pinnacle here at this, at this point. And, and the things that he says are absolutely shocking. You'll listen to what he says in, in chapter 22. He says in verse 2, Can a man be profitable to God? Surely he who is wise is profitable to himself. Is it any pleasure to the Almighty if you are in, if you are in the right? Or is it gain to him if you make your ways blameless? Is it for your fear of him that he reproves you and enters into judgment with you? Is not your evil abundant? There's no end to your iniquities, for you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing and stripped the naked of their clothing. You have given no water to the weary to drink and you have withheld bread from the hungry. The man with power possessed the land and the favored man lived in it. You have sent widows away empty and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. Therefore snares are all around you and sudden terror overwhelms you or darkness so that you cannot see and a flood of water covers you. That's how Eliphaz sees things at this point. <laughs> uh, unbelievable final response of Eliphaz. He, he first begins by saying, Job, what does it matter to God if you are righteous? You think that you're so good that that should cause God to act. And in short, Eliphaz basically says, God doesn't care. Uh, You think you're so good, you're so right, and God is completely unmoved by that. And that's the end of verse 3. Is it gain to Him if you make your ways blameless? Does it really move the needle at all before God that He would listen to you or care for you in the slightest? That's an interesting question to ponder for a minute. Because I think we would all recognize in an absolute sense in, in questioning this, we would say, well, no, God doesn't need human beings, right? That's what makes Him God. Obviously, He can uh, be self-contained, and it's not like He's pining in heaven going, I just can't live up here until I get some humans around me, and what will I ever do until they get here? You know, it's not the way God is presented. But is it true to say God just doesn't delight in those things? He doesn't care. He takes no pleasure in the righteous. And so what does it matter, Job, if you're blameless? It's of absolutely no relevance to God and he doesn't care. I'd like for you to consider how the book began. Because this whole thing happened and this whole problem unfolded Because God delighted in Job and said to Satan, 
Have you seen my servant Job? He's blameless and upright and fears God and turns from evil. The whole reason this whole thing got started was because God was taking joy in his servant Job and was proclaiming his servant in the heavenly places such that here is Satan who presents himself among these spiritual beings, these sons of God. And God has to go, you've seen Job, right? We get a picture of that for most certainly in the scriptures where we have statements like in Psalm 35 and verse 27. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore. Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Of course he delights in his people. Of course he delights in righteousness. Psalm 18 verse 19. He brought me out of a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. You notice that Eliphaz now attempts to present God to Job in a way that says... God just doesn't really care what you do. Your righteousness doesn't move him in the slightest. Now, he would argue God cares about his wickedness, which he goes on to express. He absolutely is watching that. But if you're good before God, God doesn't care in the slightest about that. He's not moved by that. But that's what makes God fascinating that we learn about him in the scriptures is that he does care about those things. He does delight in righteousness. He does delight in his children. He cares about those things. Too often, and this is perhaps more comes from the other religions of of sorts, but I think we may impose these things upon God, that we may approach God and present a similar attitude where we think, well, God is just kind of this faraway God who doesn't really care and he's not really watching and he's unmoved by the things that are going on and whether I'm righteous or wicked is really of no concern to him because he's so high and mighty and lifted up and exalted and far away and it doesn't matter. And that's not ever what God says. God always speaks of, I care about you, I delight in your righteousness, I'm watching over you, what you do matters to me. And that should impress us because in the absolute sense, does God need us? No. But in his economy, he goes, yes. I care about you, I desire you, I delight in you. In fact, that's why I'm sacrificing for you, to show you how much I love you. And that's what makes them the God that we serve absolutely fantastic and absolutely amazing because we could have a God that just says, yeah, I don't care about you, but I'm God, so deal with it and now do all the things that I tell you to do. And he'd be right and fair and just to do such a thing. But he is also loving and merciful and gracious and and all these other characteristics that he describes. And so what you have Eliphaz doing in describing God this way really is an attack on the character of God at this point to say, well, he just doesn't care about the righteous and has no concern about what you do and your blamelessness doesn't matter to him in the slightest when the scriptures indicate otherwise. Furthermore, verses 6 through 11 are absolutely shocking, right? Because now we have at this point where we have all of these accusations of sin. If we didn't know any better, we would at this point kind of go, oh, wow, man, Job really must be a bad person, except you read the first two chapters like I did, which told us he didn't do any of those kinds of things. He was blameless and upright and feared God and turned away from evil. And so what we have Eliphaz doing is absolutely making things up. 
Well, you, you know, you crush the widows and you don't care for the fatherless and you send away the hungry and you take pledges, which is against the law. And so you do all of these things that are clear violations of God's law. And verse 10, therefore, that's why all these snares are around you and sudden terror overwhelms you and the darkness is everywhere. Because look at all the sinful things that you do. And if you've been in a significant trial, you've probably experienced people do things like that. Well, they will say, well, you must have done something wrong. And then continue to pursue it to such a degree and try to conjure up, well, maybe you did this and maybe you didn't do that. And maybe it was this. And, you know, you really aren't as good of a person as you think you are. And you're really quite terrible, actually. This is what Eliphaz has done in his discussion. We've seen a far cry from back in chapter 4 when Eliphaz opens up by saying, you know, perhaps there are some things, if I might just say a word to you, maybe there was something that, that you're overlooking to now direct charges of sin that he gives him again and again laying out on him. You strip the naked of their clothing. I mean, clearly you are the most wretched of people. <laughs> Unbelievable words. And yet, as we've seen in the book of Job and we've discussed in our studies, how frequently people will say what needs to be said to defend a particular point of view or theology about God. Since this is the way I think God is or the way I think God operates, therefore I must say all these kinds of things which are absolutely false so that I can hold on to a particular doctrine that I believe in. And Eliphaz does that. Eliphaz still contends that the only reason people suffer is because they're wicked. And so therefore, Job, you must have done something wrong. And so I'm going to throw as much mud at you as I can to see what sticks. And perhaps one of these things will finally hit you and you'll go, oh yeah, you're right. I did really strip naked people of their clothing. And and now I I thank you for bringing that to my attention. Uh, Unbelievable what Eliphaz does. Shocking that he calls them friends. That's what then leads to verses 12 to 20, where we're going to basically see the same rehearsal of what these three friends keep saying. Is that God punishes sinners. Don't you understand, Job, that you must be a sinner and that's why you're being punished. Verses 12 to 14, you thought God didn't see all the sins that you were doing. Basically, you were a hypocrite. You fooled everybody and we all thought you were righteous and you thought God didn't see what you were doing wrong but he clearly sees all of your sins. And so therefore, justice is now finally coming upon you. In fact, he makes the point in verse 17, one of of the things that brings defiance against God is the fact that justice can be delayed. And so one of the curious arguments that Eliphaz finally ends on is he says, okay, even the wicked do get blessed for a short time. And then eventually they get what they deserve and God then snatches it away from them. And what he tells Job then basically is, so God blessed you richly, but the wicked before they're allowed to enjoy those blessings, God strips them away from them and judges them and causes all this pain and suffering. And so he says, therefore, Job, you may have fooled us for a time and God is a good God and he gave you blessing for a time. But while you kept sinning, you thought God's justice was delayed. And so that perpetuated your sin. And now God is finally giving you what you deserve, which there is some truth to that concept, isn't there? That delayed justice causes sin to run more. (laughs) 
I mean, this is undoubtedly the case. The, the longer it goes where there is no justice, people go, well, God's not going to do anything, so it's okay, I get away with my sins, and God's not going to catch that up with me, so I'll just go and keep doing what I'm doing. And there is the human concept of that, that we act in that way, and we allow ourselves to think that, well, because nothing happens now, and because there's not immediate justice, and perhaps not even justice in this lifetime, this means there won't be justice, and so it's okay that I sin, because it's never going to catch up to me, I can just kind of keep running ahead of that. And one of the things that Eliphaz says is, so you thought that, and now it's finally caught up to you, and that's why you need Uh, to understand your sin. Now, would you be surprised by what the solution is that Eliphaz gives for Job? (laughs) By now, all three of these guys keep saying the same thing. What you need to do is you need to repent and it'll all be better. You see that in verse 21, agree with God and be at peace. Therefore, goodwill will come to you. And he just continues the rest of that paragraph saying, if you would just finally admit your sins and you would finally repent of the things that you've done, God would reverse all of this and he would make it all better. In previous lessons, we have attacked that very idea that repentance does not mean your physical blessings will return. Just because you turn to God and do right doesn't solve your physical problems. It doesn't make it all better. That was just a variation of the health and wealth gospel. If you come to God, and things are just going to be all better. And if you walk away from God, it'll certainly be all worse. That's not how God operates, and it's not how He runs the world. So Eliphaz, that's really the big to-do for him, and it's really not a whole lot of help at this point, isn't it? In fact, if so little help... Job's response typically in our studies has been to first address the words of the friend who speaks and then turn and speak to God, either in lament or in complaint, whatever it is. But first he'll address what the friends say. This time he doesn't. Because what's, what's, what's to talk about? <laughs> That's the way I look at this. If you heard that response uh, by, by Eliphaz that said, well, clearly you strip the naked and you uh, crush the fatherless and do all this to the orphans, and, you know, and you'd be like, I don't even know why we're talking anymore. And you'll notice that in Job's response, he basically then completely foregoes what Eliphaz says. Chapter 23, verse 1. Then Job answered and said, Today also my complaint is bitter, my hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. There an upright man could argue with him and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. Behold, I go forward and he's not there and backward and I do not perceive him on the left hand. When he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. Basically, Job continues his declaration of despair. He has constantly been saying, I need my ability to stand before God. I need a court appointment. If I could just find God, I'd be able to straighten all this out. In fact, that's what he says in verses 6 through 9. If I could find him, then this is what would happen. But I look to the right, I look to the left, I'm looking all over the place, and I can't get in the presence of God. And what is perhaps shocking of the paragraph is he says... 
If I could do that, I would fill my mouth full of arguments. I know what he would answer me. (laughs) And understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. And I'd just kind of start sliding to the right going, (laughs) Now, one of the reasons why he has confidence, as he points out in verse 7, the upright has the ability to stand in the presence of God. He understands that because he knows he is not unrighteous. He knows he's not a sinner, so he feels that he can find his place in the presence of God because he understands that the wicked would certainly be judged by God and would not be able to stand in his presence. But because he's upright, this gives him a boldness to say, I could come into that place and I could fill my mouth full of arguments and I know what he would say. And I think what he's thinking is, you're right, you're innocent. You're right, you're blameless. And he would listen to me. Well, that's pretty tough stuff that he says. It's pretty bold stuff that he says. In fact, the confidence continues in, in verse 10. When he says, but he knows the way I take. And when he has tried me, I shall shall come out as gold. My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and I have not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. And so here is the confidence that he says is I have a clear conscience about these things. I have not turned away from God. And you'll notice he describes his delight for the law of the Lord like David does. It speaks of a, of a joy of those words. I haven't departed from them. At the end of verse 12, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. David would say, it's better and sweeter than honey in the honeycomb. And he's saying the same thing here. It's better to me than even the food that I eat. The word of God means that to me. And so I have not rejected God. I haven't turned away from God. I love his words and I want to be able to be in his presence. And so he feels that he should be able to come into the courtroom of God and present his case and be found vindicated. It may be perhaps these are the words right here that Job says amongst a few others that ultimately will say I have said too much because this is certainly boldness on his part to say that uh, I I would understand him and he would answer me Uh, he certainly has a, a, a bit of confidence going for him at this moment that leads then to a very interesting conclusion to this first lament notice verse 13 But he is unchangeable, and who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. For he will complete what he appointed for me, and many such things are in his mind. Therefore, I am terrified at his presence. When I consider, I am in dread of him. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. Yet I am not silenced because of the darkness, nor because thick darkness covers my face. This is an interesting picture that he has. It's because he says God is sovereign. He does what he wills and he accomplishes his purposes. But then he pushes it a little bit further and says, and no one can change his mind. And since he won't change his mind about me and about my circumstances, I am terrified of him because he is all powerful and he always does what his will is. And because he is sovereign and mighty, he has decided to attack me and there's no way for that to stop. 
because that's the power of God. And so he finds the sovereignty of God to be absolutely terrifying. I think that is an interesting conclusion he draws that we need to consider for a moment. I want us to consider that sometimes we can feel that way too. What I think you have Job saying is, this is a trial that doesn't feel like it's ever going to end. And there's no way to get God to stop because he always accomplishes his will and his will is to crush me. That's kind of the argument that I think he's basically laying out. This is not going to get any better. The circumstances will never change because God is coming after me. And I think in the midst of trials, we absolutely feel that way. That this trial is never going to end. I, I, I really believe that that is what makes trials to be as, as uh, vicious and demoralizing and crushing as they are is because when you are in them, it feels like this is the way it will always be. It will never get any better, and I'm just hoping it doesn't get worse. It's just kind of you're in that darkness. In fact, he describes it as darkness in the ver- in verse 17. He says, I'm not silenced because of the darkness and because of the thick cloud that covers my face. I don't see any way out, and I cannot get before God. I'm just in the darkness, and I'm in the gloom. But the thing that's, that's interesting about that is because that's not the way God presents himself. In, in fact, this is actually to be a help for us in trials. This is this characteristic of God is actually intended to be a comfort in regards to his sovereignty. And it's not supposed to be something that would cause us to be dismayed like we see Job doing here. And the reason why is this. How many times does God call upon people, allow people, and even command people and say, I want you to talk to me. I want you to speak to me. And how often do we see a change of course because people have talked to God? I mean, the most notable that always comes to mind is Abraham in regards to Sodom and Gomorrah, where we are watching God and Abraham have this amazing discussion about the welfare of the city. And you read this and go, this is fascinating. And if you remember way back when we studied this, that God did that with intention. Remember, he says, I'm not going to hide this from Abraham. I'm going to tell him what I'm doing. Well, why was God going to tell Abraham what he's doing? Except to have this very discussion about the righteous in the city. It is an amazing thing how God says, I want you to come to me. I want you to talk to me. Why does God want you to pray to him? Why does God want you to talk to him? Why does he call for you to call upon him in your suffering, in your pain, in your trial? So that it can be cathartic and you can feel better, but nothing's going to change. No. Because God is saying, I'm sovereign and I can change things. There are all kinds of instances like that where Paul would say, like we've studied in 2 Corinthians, we believed we'd received the sentence of death. We thought we were done. And God changed things. And here we are. And there's a lot to be said for an understanding that the sovereignty of God is actually supposed to be the comfort 
and not supposed to be a terror to us because God does listen to his children, that God does relent, that God does rule. God does see what is happening. God does know what's going on and God is in control. And that gives us a confidence because if things do not change, I understand that God cares, he sees, he loves me, and he's accomplishing his will. And I rest in that knowledge. Or things do change, and he answers what I'm asking for him to do, and then I see him act, and that is my relief and my comfort. The sovereignty of God becomes a great comfort. If we don't have the sovereignty of God and you're going through trials, then you're sitting back and you're saying, well, what is going on around here? (laughs) Who's in charge of this thing? Somebody do something around here. But the idea and the knowledge that God does rule, that he is in control, now gives me comfort and confidence to go, okay, I don't understand, and this is really hard and difficult, but I trust in a God who knows these things and sees these things, who promises that he loves me, who says, I will never leave you, I'll never forsake you, and that he's doing what is in your best interests. And so I rest in the sovereignty of that. It is not intended to be a terror, because that's not what God does. God does not go, all right, I've got all this power, so I'm going to scare you on earth as much as I possibly can. What God says is, so pray to me. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. Constantly calling upon his people. Talk to me. Talk to me. Pray to me. In fact, as we were talking about this morning in the Jeremiah Bible class, perhaps one of the reasons why God keeps telling Jeremiah, don't pray for these people, is because God is moved by prayer. God is absolutely moved by prayer. And that gives us great hope when you think about your prayers in all of your lack of power lack of knowledge and lack of control are able to move God who possesses all power and all knowledge and all control that's a staggering idea and that is the great power of prayer that is given to us and is a hope that is given to us. And it is something that Job needed at this moment where he looks at the sovereignty of God and it is a terror to him that God does these things. And it is the sovereignty of God that gives us hope and it gives us confidence to know that God is at work, that he is not asleep, he has not gone away, but he is working through these things for our spiritual good. As much as... I am with you in this this thought process that I don't want to grow in faith and I don't want to have greater spirituality if it means I have to go through trials and suffering and refining of faith and all that. It's like, it's not, I want it to come through easy times and I want it to come through comfort and I want it to come through blessings, but we all know that's just not how it works. We are molded and changed and refined by fire and that's what God's always telling us is these things happen to us to use as a tool to refine us so that we would become what God is desiring us to be it is a thing that even Elihu will say later on when we study his words and so I hope you'd consider in the face of trials the sovereignty of God is of great comfort and of great confidence and based on this in regards to the sovereignty of God 
This continues Job's response. Chapter 24, verse 1. Why are not times of judgment kept by the Almighty? Why do those who know Him never see His days? Some move landmarks, they seize flocks and pastures, they drive away the donkey of the fatherless, they take the widow's ox for a pledge, they thrust the poor off the road, the poor of the earth all hide themselves. Behold, like wild donkeys in the desert, the poor go out to their toil, seeking game. The wastelands yield food for their children. They gather their fodder in the field. They glean the vineyard of the wicked man. They lie all naked, all night naked without clothing and have no covering in the cold. They are wet with rain and of the mountains. They cling to the rock for lack of shelter. There are those who snatch the fatherless child from the breast and they take a pledge against the poor. They go about naked without clothing, hungry. They carry the sheaves among the olive rows of the wicked. They make oil. They tread the wine presses, but suffer thirst. From out of the city, the dying groan and the soul of the wounded cries for help. Yet God charges no one with wrong. That's the underlined point. Why doesn't God do something? Job says, do you see the ridiculous amount of wickedness that is going on? Do you see all the evil that people do? And he just comes to it and says, why doesn't God do something? The wicked do not get what they deserve. And that's the end of verse 12 when he just says, God doesn't charge them with wrong. I don't understand what is happening. And so all the way through verse 17, he's describing the wicked, all of their evil that they do, and says, this doesn't make sense. Why doesn't God do something about it? And then you have something fairly fascinating because what he says next has caused every scholar to have no idea what Job is doing. (laughs) Because here is Job going, God doesn't do anything. God is not just. He doesn't accomplish these things. He lets the wicked get away with these things. And how often we feel the same way, God, why don't you do something? And then notice what Job now does in verse 18. I'm going to take out the you say. ESV says you say. A few translations say you say. That's not there. Just write, write into the actual text. Swift are they that face they are swift are they on the face of the waters. Their portion is cursed in the land. No treader turns toward the vineyards. Drought and heat snatch away the snow water. So does Sheol, those who have sinned. The womb forgets them, the worm finds them sweet. They are no longer remembered, so wickedness is broken like a tree. They wrong the barren, childless woman, and do not and do no good to the widow. Yet God prolongs the life of the mighty by His power. They rise up when they despair of life. He gives them security, and they are supported, and His eyes are upon their ways. They are exalted for a little while, and then they are gone. They are brought low and gathered up like all the others. They are cut off like the heads of grain. If it is not so, who will prove me a liar and show me? me that there is nothing in what I say. That paragraph sounds like the opposite of everything Job has said throughout this book. And that's what causes a problem to everybody is to go, wait a minute, you just even in this paragraph just said the wicked don't get what they deserve. And now you turn around and say, yes, they do. They absolutely have these things coming to them. And God absolutely brings those things upon them. And so God is going to deal with them. That is why almost every translation does one of two things. At the beginning of verse 18, you have a you say, which is not there. 
But you put that there because we're trying to figure out what do we do with this because Job has not spoken like this in the whole book. And if you don't have what you say, you will notice your translation will have quotation marks. And it'll go, quote. And so what it is doing is saying, he is quoting what the friends say. There's only one translation that doesn't do either of those, and that's the Holman Christian Standard. There's no quotations and there's no you say. It just says that's what Job said. Everybody else now deals with this and goes, well, this he has to be quoting what the friends say. Maybe that's what he's doing. Uh, and I'm not going to be so brazen to say the, all these people are wrong and, and that's not the way it is. Maybe that's what he's doing. The challenge that I see in understanding Job is just quoting the friends here is he doesn't rebut that. If, if, if verses 18 to 25 are quoting what the friends say, then where is the rebuttal to it in saying, see, but that's not the way it is. When Job has spoken words of his friends, you'll turn around and go, but that's not what I see. I see this, 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 and this. You say this, but that's not the way it is. And so it doesn't seem to me to be likely that what Job is doing is saying, well, here's what you guys say, and then ending his speech on that, because you'll notice chapter 25 is Bildad, and that was all he had to say. If Job is speaking from his heart about the way he feels, and I think that he is, this isn't really too difficult to reconcile because I think this is truly the essence of what a challenging trial does to a person. Is that there is this constant disconnect between faith and what you experience. This is what we go through in our difficulties. We are constantly dealing with, okay, I know this is what God does, But this is not what I see. I believe God does this, but it doesn't look like that right now. And I believe chapter 24 is a great expression of that. Here is Job going, when are you going to do something about the wicked? I see all the wicked prosper and they're doing all of these things and you don't charge them with wrong. When is God going to do something? And then turn around and still affirm this retribution theology that he's constantly believed in from the very beginning that God will certainly do something at some point. He has to. He's going to do this at some point. And we've seen Job do that earlier. We may not have been aware of it as clearly, but we have seen Job affirm the the justice of God again and again, while at the same time challenging, where's the justice of God? He goes, I know you're just. That's why he believes he can stand in the courtroom of God. That's why he believes he can fill his mouth full of arguments, because he knows that God is just. But at the same time, he's looking around going, but you're not just. Think about how many times you see that in the people of God again and again. How about Psalm 22 is a great example of that. Psalm 22 opens the words of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How does he feel? God's gone. God's left me. Read further in that Psalm. What does he say? You never left. You were always there all along. We never do that, right? We never have this massive disconnect between what our faith tells us we know and the way we feel in the present circumstances. Well, that happens all the time. Happens all the time. That's why Hebrews 13 up there. Hebrews 13. I will never leave you and I'll never forsake you. God's promised to you. Have you ever felt like God's left you and forsaken you? There's your disconnect between faith and feeling. I know God made a promise. He will never leave me. He'll never forsake me. What can man do to me? Well, at the same time, I'm going, where did you go? And Job's doing that right here. Job is looking at this going, I know 
that you are just, and I know you're going to deal with the wicked, but when are you going to do something about it? Because look at what's going on. And so I believe this is the best reconciliation rather than adding words to the text. I think we just look at Job as understanding this final dilemma, this major disconnect of why doesn't God do something, but I know God's going to do something. I want you to act, but and I don't see why you're not acting, but inevitably I know you will act. And he continues to affirm his belief that God will do something, that God will judge the wicked, even though he just doesn't feel like that's going to happen at this point. Now, what do we get from all of that? Because this is a beautiful text that really, I believe, should give us hope and give us strength through difficulties, in particular in dealing with the question of wickedness. It is a a point that Job continues to return to again and again because of his own righteousness, that he can't understand why he's suffering and, and God is not doing something about it. And why aren't you doing something about the wicked? If you recall, last week we talked about his concern of vindication. When will I be vindicated? Somebody write this on a stone. I wish it were in a book to be read forever so that basically when my skin melts off, somebody will know that I was blameless, that he's wanting vindication in that. In a similar way, what you're noticing Job say is now to the other side of that coin, when will there be justice? When is God going to do something about all of the sin that is going on? When is God going to do something about all of this wickedness that is running rampant in our society? Why doesn't God act? Why doesn't God do something at this moment? And it is always the cry of the righteous. God, do something. And that's why we have to be reminded again and again, instant justice would be disastrous. As much as I want instant justice in particular circumstances to understand the character of God and the way that he runs the world is that it is God's goal to save people. And that's really hard to deal with because there are physical consequences that we must deal with in terms of a wicked world because God is a patient God that desires for people to be saved and he will continue to wait. And that means wickedness increases and sin abounds and evil goes on. But the reasoning behind it is because God says, I didn't have to come to judge the world, John 3 or 17. You're already condemned. The whole point of me coming is to try to save you. And so how is God able to be just and merciful? How is he able to do this balance? It is a a, a beautiful picture that is given to us over in Revelation 20 and verse 11. Then I saw the great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were open. Then another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. 
And you read that and you go, well, eventually God's going to do something about it. And he describes it in this inescapable way. The sea gives up the dead. Hades gives up the dead. The grave gives up the dead. Everybody stands before God. And I want us to realize that has to happen if God is a just God. If we believe anything about God that He is right and true and just, then guess what? By definition, there must be a final judgment because there is not justice here. It has to be. There must be something at the end because there is not justice now. And this is what God proclaims is I am patient and long suffering and I love and I care about you. But understand something. The time is coming. Second Corinthians five, verse 10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due, that what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Justice is not now. Now, God gave us governments. I would just point out Romans 12 and 13. If you got that big 13 out of the way of the chapter break, remember Romans 12 ends, don't avenge yourself. God will repay. He will do it. And then how does chapter 13 begin? One of the reasons God, how God does that is through government. God, government's supposed to be the, the bringer of wrath against the evildoer and protect the innocent. Does that always happen? No. And it reminds us then that God may not right the wrongs that we experience. He may not right all of the sins of what people do and how we are wronged and harmed for doing right and all of the wicked things that people do. But that reflects the patience of God. All that is allowed for us is to look at other people and just have a love for people's souls like God does. Because I want God to do something now. And God says, no, you don't understand how much I love that person. I'm trying to give them a little bit more time to repent before it's too late. This is the patience of God. But let me end by saying that patience must not be ever misunderstood as overlooking. I'll end with 2 Peter 3 and verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Why does wickedness continue? God, why don't you do something? And God says the answer is it's because I don't want a single person on earth to perish. And I'm trying to get them all back before it's too late. But don't mistake God's patience as if he will not do something.
He will. The time will come. And so how will we live with that understanding? Let that help through difficulties when you suffer at the hands of evil to put on the lenses of God how much he loves people and is hoping to save that person's soul. Justice will come for what they've done, but he delays that justice as long as possible because he desires for every person to repent. What an amazing God we serve. We're going to sing a song and we invite you then to come to Jesus and come to a patient and loving God who cares for you. And let that continue to be your anchor through suffering. His sovereignty means that he is watching over these things. He rules over the earth. He's aware of all of what is going on. He does accomplish his plan and his purposes. But may we understand that, you know, one of his big purposes is saving people from sin. And that affects why the world is the way it is. Because he wants all to come to him. Will you come to him? Won't you come now? While we stand and while we speak.